The use cases are very similar to the use cases where people are going to the edge for. E-commerce is a big one, A-B testing, you know, user profiles, anything really that is global. It's funny because database people, we think a lot more in terms of characteristics than in terms of use cases. People who met me in the past 10 years know me as the, a database person, but back then, had you invited me to join a database company, my reaction would have been no. Hey, this is Brian, and you're listening to Jamstack Radio, a bi-weekly series where we discuss modern web development with maintainers, founders, and developers. Jamstack Radio is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor and developer-first startups. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter, at Jamstack Radio. Welcome to another installment of Jamstack Radio. On the line, we got Glauber Costa. Uh, Glauber, how you doing? I'm doing great, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, pleasure to finally connect uh, on a podcast. We had met at Jamstack.conf last year. Yes. And um, yeah, congratulations on all the progress on Chisel Strike, which we'll talk about in a moment. But wanted to touch base on your background and how you got here. Absolutely. I've been doing open source for essentially my whole life, uh, which is a lot of years. Uh, I started with the Linux kernel. So there was uh, this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, Linux was this thing that was becoming huge, right? Uh, nobody really believed in open source. It was a very different world back then. Like we had to prove that this is a model that could work. Uh, I was just in college and I took an interest. I always liked like performance and low-level systems. Uh, I was never much of a web person. Uh, I tried a bit and you know, never was never my thing. And I love the fact that uh, Linux was open source, was the whole operating system, and I can just go and, and change it. Uh, and then I started contributing to it and, and um, uh, spent a, a decade doing it. I eventually started working for Red Hat, and then I worked in virtualization and the Zen hypervisor and the KVM hypervisor for uh, folks who are familiar with. Made, obviously, most of my, um, if, if not most, I mean, a, a very large part of my connections today, including my co-founder, Pekka. Uh, Pekka, at the time, he was the maintainer of the memory management subsystem for Linux, uh, I was trying to get some of my work through him. Uh, and then we developed this kind of love and hate relationship. <laughs> We've been friends since then, but like, uh, you know, just uh, he was a tough guy, tough, uh, you know, tough on accepting my contributions, of course, for a reason. Linux is a very high standard project. Uh, so I've done this for, as, as I said, around a decade. In that time frame, uh, I wasn't very interested in startups. Uh, my thing was really just like, hey, open source and hacking on Linux. That, that's it. That's the life. Uh, and when I was becoming uh, a bit interested in startups, I mean, it was growing, uh, I was growing up and, you know, figure uh, it's good to be I- innovating and doing new stuff. One great friend that I had in the community, in the Linux community, was starting a startup. Uh, and that was the creator of the KVM hypervisor with whom I worked for, for a long time. I joined his startup in, in around 2013, if I'm not mistaken, 12 or 13, something like that. And it was it, it, the startup was doing something called a unikernel, uh, which is essentially a specialized kernel. So we wrote our own kernel in C++ at the time that can only run a single application. Uh, and with, with that, uh, hopefully you get better performance. You don't have transitions between like user space and kernel space. The product didn't work very well. I mean, technically it did, but we, we've, we found no market for it. Uh, I think it was just the wrong time. Uh, things like Firecracker, for example, didn't exist. I mean, everything was a lot heavier. So you would boot this thing on, on EC2. Uh, EC2 would take like five minutes to boot a machine, and then your kernel takes 300 milliseconds to boot. It was incredible compared to Linux, but uh, <laughs> you just reduce your boot time from six minutes to five minutes, and, and 
300 milliseconds, not that impressive. <laughs> so, I mean, it didn't work uh, for a variety of reasons. And we pivoted, uh, the company pivoted into a database company. And it, it's funny because people who've met me in the past 10 years know me as the, a database person. But back then, had you invited me to join a database company, my reaction would have been no. Like, you know, please no. I mean, that's the last thing I want. Why is that? Uh, it just didn't feel to me like, it, like databases were so well established, uh, my, my, my thinking was. And it felt so arcane to me. Like, uh, and everybody has this idea of like, oh, what a stupid idea. And it's a stupid idea that everybody has, like writing a database. Um, now I'm writing my third database. So I guess uh, it grew stupid. <laughs> but uh, yeah, just, you know, I, I landed in that. So it just it wasn't my intention. I was really interested in operating systems. But uh, it also, uh, part of that is that I started realizing that that was becoming harder and harder to build the business with operating systems. Because like talk about databases being like uh, this platform, very ossified thing, operating system were becoming even more. So I had a job at Linux, but you know, if, if you think about business, it was becoming a harder and harder thing to do. Like Red Hat was very dominant and et cetera. Uh, so I, I said, you know what, I'm here. Why not? Might as well, might as well try. Uh, and the database was Scylla for, for those in the audience that might have heard of it. It was a re-implementation of Apache Cassandra in C++. Focus on very high performance and delivering 10 times the throughput with low latency. Uh, database still there, still rocking, doing tremendously well, uh, last I've heard. Uh, but it kept this ethos that I always liked about performance, uh, you know, uh, speed, uh, latency, high throughput. Uh, and I ended up staying in the company for, for eight years. Uh, and, you know, it was a, it was a great, uh, great opportunity. Uh, we wrote the whole thing from scratch. Uh, I got involved in the business side of things. And I left uh, around the time COVID started. Uh, then I spent a year at Datadog. Uh, at the time, I mean, just uh, it's something that affected all of us. So for, for a variety of reasons, I think it was better. And, and you know, my intention was uh, to spend at least four years at Datadog and say, hey, like, let me take a break from startups and, and et cetera uh, and see how the world is uh, in, in the other side of the fence. Yeah. And I want to say that Datadog is a fantastic company. Every time I have a friend that comes to ask me, hey, I mean, I've got, I'm getting an offer from Datadog. What do you think? I said, just go for it. I mean, it's a fantastic company. But uh, I also realized that I'm a builder. <laughs> I like to be building stuff. And like working for a large company uh, is very, very challenging for in, in many aspects. And and at the time, we had the opportunity to, to start Chisel Strike and then we did. Uh, so I ended up spending just a year at Datadog, and uh, now we're here with Chisel Strike, Pack and I. Yeah, I mean, fascinating. I didn't realize all your background until you dropped your bio in our, our show notes, but I feel like I just took a tour through your, <laughs> your historical record. But um, uh, I'm curious, like, what got you to leave Datadog and start Chisel Strike? Yeah, so it was a variety of things, Richard. So first of all, um, as I just mentioned, as far as uh, big companies go, Datadog was an incredibly pleasant place. But I always had the idea, like my idea was after some four years at Datadog, like I may, maybe it would be like the time uh, for me to start my own company. I always wanted to be, to be a founder. I mean, not always, as I mentioned in the beginning, in the, in the very beginning of my career was like just open source, open source, open source. Uh, but since I got interested, I like to do all sorts of things. At Scylla, I was doing engineering, I was doing marketing, I was doing sales. I mean, not as a salesperson, but helping those folks. Like, uh, so, so I, I like those environments in which you're doing everything. Uh, founder is pretty much the definition of that. Uh, and then we had the opportunity. Uh, we, we, we had a VC firm with whom we were talking to, like uh, just out of you know, friendly relationships. 
uh, as you well know, uh, VCs love to like get in touch and get to know you, etc. Every time you do something interesting, uh, just to expand their network. And we click with one VC in particular. We've been chatting with him for months, and then uh, one day, like Pekka and I uh, had this idea. Well, why don't we try this? Uh, we talk to him essentially out of curiosity, you know, let's see what comes out of it. And he was very excited, right? Ready to write the check. Uh, so essentially uh, we had a check and as I said, Datadog was great, but uh, I love being a builder. <laughs> it was tough. It was, it was really tough because uh, for, for people who have done both startups and, and big companies, you know the big advantage of big companies, right? Just uh, yeah, liquid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just left a, a big company and uh, was very comfortable for <laughs> for the the four years and eight months I was there. Yeah. So I mean, that that that's what I was shooting for. I mean, hey, four or five years, you know, I'll, I'll you know I use this liquidity to build my future. But, well, you maybe I'm just crazy. That that's 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 the story. But like, uh, you know, we had the opportunity. Uh, we had the, we had an idea that we believed in. Uh, we felt that the time was right, uh, and then like we just uh, jump jump ship. Cool. And then I, I guess we can go right into like what is Chisel Strike? Like what are you solving? So I'm going to talk a little bit about just uh, for the benefit of your of your audience, I guess, of what we were solving and uh, what we're solving now, because uh, we also had a a little bit of a detour in in the way. I don't we don't call it uh, necessarily a, a pivot, especially in comparison with what I had before. Like I start with an operating system and land with a NoSQL petabyte scale database. But our idea initially with Chisel Strike was that uh, the, the main thesis that we had is that like uh, you have people like yourself, like they're front end developers that are more and more in charge of the database decisions for your companies and for your projects and et cetera, versus an old world in which databases are the domain of the anointed, right? Uh, so we started under, trying to understand it. And, and, and we did not know that fully at the time, what we learned as we started doing our research, but like many other companies were picking up on that, uh, which in the beginning was like, oh, it's a bit scary because it's competition, but you also feel validated that like I'm hitting on, on an idea that, uh, that that's true. Uh, so things that we started as we as we've done our research uh, that we started to notice that would be important for databases to do uh, in in this new era was like play very well with the edge, uh, play uh, and and serve front end developers very well. So what we've done with Chisel Strike is that we got SQLite, right? So SQL, and, and why SQLite? Because SQLite is a database that to us felt like perfect for the edge, and then. It provides you with an like unmatched developer experience because you can do just everything locally on your laptop uh, and et cetera. Uh, and then we decided to add a Dino runtime to that and allow you to execute TypeScript functions uh, in, in the database itself. So, you know, the idea was pretty simple. Uh, and, and at some point, we said we're going to figure out a way to put SQLite at the edge. And what do you need to do to put SQLite at the edge? Uh, you need to essentially make sure that the data comes from somewhere to that instance. Uh, but once it does, uh, then, then you're behaving like you, you, you would do it locally. So now you have a super fast database that you, it doesn't feel like uh, you as a front-end developer uh, is writing code to a database. You can just write TypeScript code, and then we have a compiler that compiles just to queries and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the idea there was like a reduced friction and you know, you're a front-end developer, you don't have to learn SQL and, and things like that. Uh, but then, like the mantra of startups is like talk to your audience, right? Just uh, and and we've we've done it. We've done a bunch of things around SQLite uh, at the time, but it, it it wasn't like our main focus. Our main focus was like let's figure out the APIs first. Let's figure out like the this this part about the data and code merging, uh, however you want to call it. 
And, and then later, and we have prototypes, but then later we prioritize the thing that makes SQLite able to operate in a distributed environment. So talking a lot to our users, we realized a bunch of things. Uh, first of them is that, like, uh, as it turns out, and again, you tell me, you're, you're front-end developer. Front-end developers are not as scared of SQL as we thought. Most of them actually, you, you may be scared of databases, and we have this tendency of thinking of oh, databases and SQL are interchangeable, but, but they're not. So what we realized is that people were not only okay with SQL, they kept asking us, oh, great abstraction, but can I do SQL, right? Just can I, can I go one, one layer below and, and, and do SQL? And also, like, uh, it, the, the thing about code complicated a lot of people's mind because it, it felt like code. So the uh, question that we got asked all the time, so how do we deploy those on Netlify? I said, well, we don't because, you know, just that this is database code. So you deploy this on us and then you call this on a REST API. Uh, but it's code, right? It's, it's, it's a, the, the boundaries were not that clear. And every time we would talk to anybody, people would ask us a lot more questions. We would feel a lot more interest in the SQLite for it. And then we figure, hey, then maybe maybe that's where the things are. And then we, we reoriented the company a little bit towards that. Okay, yeah, and like the from just hitting in the the landing page, it says SQLite on the on the yeah, edge. That's, that's what it is. And yeah. I automatically already got it. And I think I saw your previous landing page uh, quite a few months ago. Uh, and I I totally understand my use case for the stuff. And you you pigeonholed me correctly. Yeah, front end developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can be dangerous in SQL, but I don't want the to go host my own databases and create droplets and do all that stuff. Yeah, I just want to interact with the database. And I think that's what we got from. All these like NoSQL solutions that were hosted, but I felt like a lot of those we end up hitting like a um, we hit it like a ceiling because you don't have as much control when you have to go dig in and get in deeper. So mm-hmm. all the stuff you mentioned like Deno and SQLite, SQLite being like no, I'm thinking of MySQL, but SQLite is also similar. It's like a low low friction. Mm-hmm. Well, SQLite is the no friction thing because your yeah. configuration is zero. Right. Yes. It's essentially a B tree in a file, right? And and that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. And that's like it, it, it ships with. Uh, I think it might still ship with Rails out of the box when you um, when you do Rails new and a couple other frameworks. Now, now our product is a little bit more complex than that, of course, right? So uh, what we offer uh, is the ability for you to develop uh, in the environments that support it. For example, Cloudflare will not. For those who know Cloudflare, for obvious reasons. Uh, local development. So you can develop everything locally with SQLite. Uh, but then, you know, you're not going to be using the database as you normally use in production, like inside your application. Because when you're doing a serverless function, when you're doing an, like an edge function, there is, first of all, the function takes a couple of milliseconds. Uh, it, it's short-lived. Usually those, those those pieces of infrastructure, they don't have local storage. Uh, you cannot even open TCP connections. So it's very hard to connect to like uh, traditional databases. So what our product allows, and our product, by the way, is called Chisel Strike Turso or just Turso, um, and we'll talk about the name later. But just uh, not to detour the, the explanation. But uh, the idea is that you now, uh, because because SQLite is so light, we can very easily and cost effectively replicate this to up to twenty six regions. Uh, and the CLI, uh, you, you have a CLI. Uh, by the way, Turso just opened uh, public beta a couple of days ago. So you can go to the website uh, and, and check it out. Uh, you're essentially going to have a CLI. The CLI allows you to create a database and then create as many replicas as you want. Uh, during the public beta, the number of replicas is limited. But that's the idea. Very cheaply, very easily, you create those replicas all over the world. Uh, and then you connect over HTTP to the closest replica. 
right? So locally, you develop everything using SQLite, and now you have a database that is based on SQLite that runs the same code, so you don't have to do... You, you could do this with Postgres. You can do something like, yeah, I'm going to do Postgres for production and SQLite uh, for development. But people who have tried to do this, they always have the abstraction layers that always break. So the code that you run in production is not exactly the same that you're running in testing. Uh, and what this yeah. allows you to do is essentially this, like the production database you access through HTTP uh, from your edge functions, uh, from your serverless functions. Uh, and again, it's super lean, uh, extremely replicated. You can replicate anywhere and be close to your users, which is uh, what a lot of people in the edge want to do. That's excellent. Yeah, I'm, this is exciting too as well. And I remember uh, I, I used to work at Netlify early days, and we did a lot of real creative stuff with some of these like SQLite databases to like go like store logs, uh, just like the historic log data one off, put it in a place. And uh, actually, at one time, it was all GitHub gist um, back in the day. But uh, I love that abstraction, which is GitHub gist to start up a prototype. <laughs> uh, but this is now one step above that. When you yeah. and I think what one thing I want to point out too as well is like. It's a simple abstraction, and I know there's like there's more complication behind that, and there's more where you can go. Mm-hmm. But I think that onboard ramp is what's really exciting about what you're doing. Because yeah. if I can get this started pretty quickly, and then I, if I need to get dig deeper or expand the operation on what I'm doing, like I want to have that at my fingertips. Yeah, and and again, we we need to have our own clients because again, SQLite is this local thing, and. Uh, we wouldn't have the need for the clients if it wasn't a serverless environment, but serverless environments is all HTTP, right? So you have to translate that. So the clients essentially allow you to write SQLite SQL code that is either proxy to the local file or to HTTP. So if your environment variable says database URL, says file something, there you go, you write into a file. If your environment variable says HTTPS, whatever, and, and the address you got from the database, you're deploying to production. Uh, simple as that. Uh, and, you know, just uh, that, that's the gist. So you start very simple. Uh, we're not going for a product, by the way, uh, that is shooting for, those are the 100 features that you, wanna, uh, you want from a database. Uh, there, there are databases that serve that use case very well. Uh, we're going for this thing that, hey, this is extremely simple, uh, works in your development, works in your CI, by the way. Imagine how fast your CI is if you're just passing local files instead of setting Docker images with databases and all that. Uh, and then when go when you go to production, it's just the same experience. And now you can replicate this to like all over the world if you want in a, with a couple of API calls. That, that's what we're shooting for, right? Excellent. And I, I wanted to take a step back because you had mentioned Terso. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, the company is Chisel Strike. The yeah. product itself right now is Terso. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the what's the plan there? Um, are you do you plan to have multiple products? Well, every company at some point has multiple products, right? So just I don't I don't know. Like uh, and uh, I'm I'm you know as as a CEO, like uh, some decisions we have to make decisively and as fast as we can, and some decisions uh, I think we just need to wait and see. Uh, and I want to see like uh, how the market feels about it. Uh, uh, the company again with the company Scylla. Uh, just as an example, the company name was Claudio Systems, and then during after the pivot, we became like both the database and the company became Scylla. Uh, so I see the value of doing this. Some other companies don't do it. I have, for example, Confluent uh, that has Apache Kafka. Yeah. So th- there is a mix out there, uh, and I think a, a name change comes when there is confusion. Uh, right, so just uh, w- w- it's too early for me to tell. I don't want you know. I, li- I actually like the Chisel Strike name. I love it. Which is, and we have the logo right here. You can't see right. Just yeah. uh, uh, Thursu just got this uh, new mascot on the website. So I don't know. Like if there's confusion, then then you know we keep different. If if there is confusion, we change one of them. 
Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And uh, can we talk about uh, more specific use cases of where you would go and reach for Terso? Yeah, so the, the use cases are very similar to the use cases where people are going to the edge for. Uh, and by the way, if you have any suggestions to, to that list, I mean, we're always looking for, for people deploying on the edge and et cetera. But those are things like uh, e-commerce is a big one, uh, because especially if you have a global presence, uh, you want your data uh, to live as close to your users. Uh, A-B testing, uh, personalization, you know, user profiles, uh, anything really uh, that is global. It's funny because database people, uh, and you know, uh, as I, as I eventually became, uh, we think a lot more in terms of characteristics than in terms of use cases. So the characteristics of this thing are like a, lots of reads, not a lot of writes, right? Because SQLite is very limited in in the amount of writes you can do. So a lot of reads, uh, low latency from global locations, essentially. So everything that serves that. And of, of course, when communicate that, you do need the use cases. And those are some very common use cases that people are moving to the edge uh, for other reasons. Like, so you want your compute to the edge uh, for those use cases. But then what you end up doing today is that your data stays behind, right? Uh, and what Turso wants to enable is that your data can now come with you, right? At, at an affordable price. Yeah, so... Clubber, I, I wanted to actually ask about the name Terso. Uh, yeah. So, like, what's the story behind that? Because it's—I don't think it's actually a real word. Uh, it is a real word. And, oh, it uh, is okay. Just not in English. <laughs> that, that's the thing. And just uh, my co-founder Pekka is Finnish. It, it's super funny because usually, usually products have a code name, uh, and then after that, you figure out a good name for the product. And in the Finnish mythology, there is a monster called Ikuturso. And eco, as, as far as I understand, means just it's just a Finnish word that means eternal. Uh, so it's like the eternal torso, and it's like a monster. Like a, and and I've even heard that Cthulhu was inspired by it, and some maybe true or false, I don't know. Uh, Pekka told me that there are parallels between that and the Leviathan. So it's just a mythological creature. But even funnier uh, is that he codenamed the pro- the internal development version this, but it wasn't even because of the monster. It was because of a Finnish beer that is called Ikuturso, uh, an IPA as far as I can tell. So he just, you know, we needed a code name, we needed to create a Git repository, say, all right, so he created Ikuturso. Uh, and then we were like thinking about names in the, in the meantime. So uh, the, the, the name that we were, going to, we were going for was Chisel Edge, essentially Chisel Strike on, on the Edge. Uh, but the more we talk to people, I mean, Turso sounded like a great name. Uh, you know, Iku Turso, uh, and I'm trying my best on the Finnish pronunciation. The <laughs> you got me. Yeah, Iku Turso is a big word, uh, and we didn't want to. So we, you know, Iku is sounds Japanese, and it's you know it's hard to get a domain. So we just went for Turso. Then Iku became the name of our mascot, like Iku the Turso, uh, that you can see on the website now. Yeah, that, that's the story. So like I, at the end of the day, it's just like, um, it sounded great. People loved it. It was a great backstory. And uh, all the names that we could come up with, uh, they, were all, they, all, they all felt very lazy. It was just like edge something, blah, blah, blah. And then we went for Turso, right? Excellent. Yeah, I love a good origin story. And uh, uh, also, I love Finnish too as well, apparently. <laughs> Excellent. So now that uh, Turso's live, uh, what's next? What, what are the plans Oh yeah, Tursu is uh, live in public beta now. So I meant, as I mentioned, you can go, uh, you can play with the product. Uh, now we're very focused on making this GA. Uh, that's our you know next iteration uh, and essentially productizing, allowing people to. Uh, we already got some uh, interesting things deployed in the platform, so allow people to essentially swipe their credit cards and and become users. Uh, so it's a lot of work on reliability, stability. 
uh, and then see where it goes. Excellent. Well, I look forward to trying it out. Um, I, I, funny enough, I of course Netlify is listed on the the homepage. Uh, they're a great user. <laughs> they would be a great user for this, and it seems like they already are. But yeah, you're part of the Jamstack Fund as well. Um, so we've had a few of the, the companies in the Jamstack Fund come chat with us. So congratulations on that. And uh, yeah, onwards and upwards. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Brian. Yeah, so I do want to transition us to picks. Uh, so these are jam picks, things that we're jamming on, things that are keeping us up at night, or maybe things that are just keeping us excited about what we're working on. So it could, it could be music, food, etc. If you don't mind, I'll go first. Uh, I actually have a tech pick, and it's more of a broader pick. Um, every year I try to do like a long series of go learn something. Uh, actually, a couple of years ago I was, learn- I was learning about databases uh, back in 2020. Because uh, like it seemed like an influx of a ton of new database tools to make it easier for me to write code and ship production stuff. Um, but right now, uh, for the month of March, so by the time you hear this, uh, I'll be completed the 30 days of AI. Specifically, I, I've been seeing all these AI products um, and all these projects built on OpenAI and etc. And I've won, I've had the itch of like, oh, I want to try it out. Let me see if I can embed this in my product. Like, we'll get there. But uh, I just wanted to learn more about the about the concept of AI, because I was at uh, GitHub when they launched Copilot. I got to see that get launched. Uh, I have good understanding of how that works, because I got to see the sort of how the sausage is made. And uh, so I'm just going through all open source AI projects. Um, so what I can find free and public available on GitHub. Uh, and it's going through the code. And I'm just writing a blog post and just give a quick description, try to keep it like 500 words around what the product does, and then walk through the code of how it actually connects to the models. There's no better. There's no better way to learn, right? Just yeah. to do it and write about it. Writing, writing is great. Uh, like lo- I think lots of people are very good at like learning by doing, but the writing about yep. it, I love it because it crystallizes the ideas in your head. Yeah, hundred percent. Like OpenAI, ChatGPT, uh, those models that uh, OpenAI has, like the documentation is kind of dense, um, and there's no search in it, so it's like it's really hard to find the thing I'm looking for in there. So what's been nice is like look at someone else who's built a thing and then go to the docs to like support understanding what they built. Uh, so it's been a great mental model for me to understand, okay, okay, this is how you choose the models. This is how you update the sort of frequency or um, what I forgot to call the, uh, the term of deterministic level. And uh, it's all stuff I understand, but like try to implement that and build that myself. Uh, I love reading other people's code to do that. It is a wild world out there with AI. Yeah, it really is. And, and um, I think, I don't know if we're going to catch up to ourselves and everyone figures out, oh, it turns out it's just the one person, one puppet master, which I guess maybe Microsoft is is driving all this. It could be, yeah, it could be. Uh, but I do want to point out that all these posts will be on my dev2, so dev.2 slash bwgeo, and uh, you can catch up uh, when you hear this. Awesome. So my pick, Brian, is just, um, I don't have a pick, and I'll make my lack of pick but the pick because the reason for that is just that I just had my, uh, my daughter now, uh, and now I'm a father of three. Uh, so I have my, I have my boy uh, that is four years old. I have my, my other girl uh, who is uh, one and a half, uh, and then my younger now uh, who is uh, four months almost. Uh, so like between that and uh, I have time for nothing, like between the startup and the kids, like... Uh, uh, I kind of feel like um, being a father was probably you know the best thing that ever happened uh, to me ever. Uh, obliterates like anything that, that my job could ever give me. Uh, so like I try to spend all my times with them. Uh, but then again, you, you kind of the, the funny thing about kids is that you kind of learn a bunch a bunch of stuff that uh, 
yeah. by being, uh, I, l- I learned all of the, you know, kids songs and etc. One thing that's funny is that like, I, I wasn't raised in North America and I wasn't raised in an English speaking country. So I do not know uh, a lot of uh, cultural things that uh, are in the cultural discourse and are used as an expression or references and etc. I, I had no idea about them at all. Uh, and then like watching my kids, I now understand. So I, I, the other day I was watching Shrek. And watching Shrek now that I understand all the references is very different than watching Shrek when I watched back then, <laughs> uh, which I did not. I mean, I spoke English. So I, watched, I, I was already even living uh, uh, in, in, in North America at the time, uh, but I did not get most of the references. I mean, some, of, some I've got because, I mean, if you've seen Shrek, a lot, lots of those like general fairy tale uh, that, you know, people would relate from from anywhere but some are very specific like this guy torturing the gingerbread man and saying the muffin man singing singing the song with the muffin man uh, you know you might not remember the movie like uh what does it say it's like a, do you know the muffin man and then the guy said the muffin man who, who lives in Dury lane right just so it's just all of those references were thing i completely missed like I, I'm, I'm essentially living a, a new childhood with my cousin. <laughs> amazing <laughs> doing, that's my pick I always uh, I love talking to folks who didn't grow up here, and like I've definitely had a lot of colleagues and coworkers uh, who either still work remote or came to the states, and it's always good to see things through their lens of them understanding, especially. I'm not I'm not in the states though because you guys haven't invaded yet. I'm in Canada, so like I'm okay. <laughs> well, so yeah, you did mention North America, so you're yeah, but yeah, it, it's still and even like talking to Canadians too as well. It's like the there are some nuances and some differences in the culture, and oh, they're always they're always nuances. Yeah, so it's always nice to you know I, I love that the that the world like we have global reach. And like my my teammates are in multiple countries, and I'm only just getting started. Like we're still a small team, but the fact that we can do that, like as a brand new company, and that's why and that's why we have a global database. Which I sorry I just couldn't resist. But, uh. <laughs> yes, exactly. Eco Terso. Everyone try it out. Yeah, there you go. Cool. Well, thanks for the the conversation, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. And um, folks, if you haven't tried out Chisel Strike or, or the new Terso product, definitely check it out and uh, keep spreading the jam. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at Jamstack Radio. This show is brought to you by Heavybit, the leading investor and developer for startups. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. 